0: Hey there, Angel Donovan with another episode of the Dating Sex Relationships Podcast. This is a podcast where we look at results-based dating, sex, and relationships. What does that mean? We're really just looking for advice that will translate to real-life practical results. So what we do is we look at the subject from many perspectives to try and get at the truth, what actually works. The interesting thing about this is often the information from completely different perspectives will overlap. Whether it comes from very experienced guests who say worked in an area for 20 years or from scientific researchers with academic research studies to back them up. And it's really interesting when those things overlap and we can feel pretty confident that we're getting at the truth. Today, we're going to be looking more at the science angle and it's going to be interesting if you think back to the episode we had with Jaya, which was a very experience-based Very interesting the overlap there is between the two, and with next episode's guest, Lawrence Lanhoff, also. So we've got three episodes around the subject of sex, which uh, I think there's some great overlap, and it's a lot about the mental game of sex. Get more into that later. So a quick message about the new program we launched recently, which is called A Traction Implant. This program, as I mentioned last episode, is all about action-taking and getting people who haven't actually taken the information we've given you in these podcasts or in products or wherever you found the information you've been using or you've been studying or you've been learning from, if you haven't actually put that into action and started changing your life, getting the results that we really want you to get, well, that's when you may want to look at Attraction Implant. It's a program we've designed to encourage implementing new behaviors for you to actually change done in micro steps. So in order to go and check that out, I don't want to talk a lot about it because all the information is pretty much on the page, the product page. You can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash implant. And if you have any questions for me about it, you can just hit me up by email at angel at datingskillsreview.com. Okay, so today's topic is about sex again. We're going to add a very strong science background to the sexuality topics that we've covered before with sexologists like Jaya, porn stars like Marcus London, and many others over the now years we've been doing this podcast. What you're going to find out is that the mind has a central importance in the role of sex. And although we're taught the techniques and the physical side of it is really, really important, really what today's episode looks at is how important the mind is, how overpoweringly important the mind is in the quality of sex. Today's guest's perspective comes from the study he's done using brain imaging technologies, the functional MRI, fMRI if you know that, which looks at blood flow in the brain. And he looks at that with the focus of understanding orgasm. And he's been doing this for 30 years and he's got countless, countless Images, brain scans behind him to show what lights up in the brain when someone has orgasm, when they're stimulated by different types of physiology or or mental aspects of sex, different people, how they respond, and so on. So, you know, he's got a lot to say about this topic. Now, I won't lie. This is going to be a bit more technical than usual, a bit more sciencey than usual. And you may find it a little overwhelming, but bear with us because there's some really cool overlaps with a lot of the other stuff we've seen and it provides that justification and also some new insights we haven't talked about before. And I also refer to past episodes and bring these subjects up so I can we can discuss them from a scientific perspective also to get some more validation for these things we've previously spoken about. So today's guest is Barry Komisaruk, PhD. He's a distinguished professor at Rutgers University, and he has dedicated 30 years of his life to exploring the orgasm, most of this via the scans I was just talking about, but also looking at animals and pharmacological studies and other aspects of it, but primarily the image scans. He's also written two comprehensive books on the subject, notably The Science of Orgasm, and he's published over 100 research studies on the topic, so that's a lot. Quickly, before we get into the interview with Barry, I would just really like to thank you for the latest iTunes reviews that have gone up from you. Here's a couple of them I'd just like to reach out and say thank you for. There's uh, one from Selmic4 from Germany, and he says, everybody will learn new stuff from this. I want to get good with women, and this podcast is worth the weight of my iPad in gold. He obviously likes iPads. Thank you, Selmic4. And another one from BS Kim D, and this time in the US, is best podcast ever. Really helped to put things in perspective. Couldn't thank this podcast enough. Thank you very much, guys, for the ratings and reviews. It really helps get the word out about the podcast. So thanks so much. Okay, as usual, if you want to get the show notes, there's two ways to get those. You can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick this episode out. Everything's on the page there. Or you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter Pop your email in there and you'll get them automatically in your email inbox every time we put one of these out. Now, let's get into this interview with Barry. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So just to get a bit of background on what you do, you know, you're working in a lot of scans and I think a lot of our audience are very scientific. So in layman's terms, could you explain how you go about exploring orgasms and investigating them?
1: We record the uh, activity in the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging or functional MRI. And um, we have uh, men or women uh, do self-stimulation in the scanner. And uh, we map the uh, genital sensory input to the brain. And then we ask them to uh, stimulate uh, to orgasm, they'll stimulate to orgasm. Uh, We've also done partner stimulation to orgasm under various conditions. And so that's the basic situation. One of the big problems with uh, doing brain imaging is head movement. So uh, I spent a lot of time and uh, effort in uh, developing a system that uh, immobilizes the head. So we have been able to reduce the head movement to uh less than two millimeters, which can be compensated for by the by the computer program. So that must
0: be fun for the people in the scanner, having orgasms while they can't move their heads.
1: <laughs> right. It takes a special kind of people. <laughs> but um they say it's comfortable. It's basically a uh a whiplash uh, neck brace and uh combined with uh thermoplastic mesh over the back of the head and the front of the face. It uh, <laughs> sounds like a fetish. We, we heat it up and uh, warm water and mold it to the head and the face and to the neck brace and um, cut out holes for the eyes and the nose. And um, uh, then we clamp it down into the scanner. So it really uh, holds the head very uh, immobile, but it's comfortable. I've done it myself and nobody has complained about it.
0: Well, that's, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. So in terms of what the fMRI is actually looking at, what is it? Is it blood flow? How are you getting at the kind of the brain activity? It's more
1: more than blood flow. It's related to blood flow. But what happens in the uh, fMRI is that um, when neurons in the brain are more active, they take in more oxygen from the blood. And the uh, iron in the blood carries the oxygen. So as soon as the oxygen is taken out of the blood, it changes the magnetic property of the iron in the blood. And that perturbation is what is picked up in three dimensions in a magnetic field, and, uh, and that's what creates the image. So it's really the activity of the brain in a local region taking the oxygen out of the blood, and that change is what is measured as the brain activation. That local activation is superimposed on the anatomical image of the person's own brain, Uh, so we know exactly where it's located.
0: Yeah, great. And we hear a lot about functional MRI in the press these days. Pretty much all of the studies and stuff are are using it. Why is it the most popular for tracking things like brain activity?
1: Is it the best thing we have right now? It's the best thing we have. The advantage is that you can see activity in the brain in three dimensions, throughout the brain all the way, in all regions of the brain. The difference between that and EEG that people are familiar with is that EEG is really just... uh, uh, basically surface activity. You can't, you can't localize the activity deep in the brain. But with the functional MRI, you can see uh, very small regions of activation in all places in the brain and even in the spinal cord. The other major advantage of functional MRI is that it's just a so- software modification of MRI. So all hospitals have MRIs to do anatomical images of the body. The functional MRI uses a special software to add uh, the ability to see brain activation. So there are many such instruments throughout the world, and basically in most major hospitals have an MRI instrument, so it's possible to have functional MRI. So it, there's been an explosion in the use of, of functional MRI since it was uh, started in the 1990s. Tens of thousands of, of studies using functional MRI because it's relatively cheap as compared to... Um, Positron emission tomography, or PET, which is the other major brain imaging uh, method, that requires um, making radioactive uh, substance. And it it comes to about, um, when I've done it, it was about $7,000 per scan, as opposed to functional MRI, which is um, uh, several hundred dollars per hour. The other advantage of fMRI is that it's completely non-invasive, as opposed to PET, where you have to inject Radioactive material into the into the person in the scanner. There's nothing like that in the functional MRI. They just lie in the scanner and we take the pictures. Yeah, much safer, uh, probably for the long term.
0: Especially if you're going to be doing quite a lot on them, as it seems you do doing your studies. Have you been working on orgasms for thirty years, or have you been well, scientifically speaking? Uh, <laughs> scientifically speaking, or
1: however you want to speak. Scientifically speaking, I've been studying orgasm for about uh, for about. Uh, 35 years. But uh, I've been studying um, reproductive behavior, starting in uh, with laboratory animals uh, uh, for um, about uh, 40, 45, 50 years. Great. And I so started so very young.
0: <laughs> you, you did. And you, you, know, you must be one of the world's experts at this point. So if you want to like walk us through the 35 years, what were the big highlights in terms of your work? Has it all been functional MRI looking at how the brain responds to orgasms? Is that the most fascinating thing for you? Is it the brain and how it's related to orgasms? Because a lot of things we think about today are physical, right? When we're talking about orgasms, it's like some of the things we have on the show. It's like hitting the G-spot and like stimulating the clitoris. And these are the kind of things that everyone talks about a lot. But of course, you've focused a lot of your energy on looking at the brain. Have there been other things that you've looked at over
1: time? Yeah, sure. I've looked at the nerve pathways getting to the brain. And those have been um, very, uh, very interesting. Uh, for one thing, I was studying the way I, I got into this whole area was uh, through uh, uh, studies in uh, laboratory animals in which um, the mating stimulus stimulates the hormones of pregnancy. I was interested in in how the brain controls the, the hormone system and how the hormones influence the brain. That was how I got started. And um, in my postdoc at uh, UCLA uh, in the Brain Research Institute, they were studying um, uh, this reflex of uh, how uh, vaginal stimulation stimulates the hormones of pregnancy. And when I tried it in my own lab, I saw that the animals seemed to... First, they became immobilized with the vaginal stimulation. I tested whether, they are, whether the immobilization would inhibit their response to uh, painful stimulation, and it completely blocked the response to painful stimulation. And I did a, a series of uh, studies to confirm that the pain is really blocked by the vaginal stimulation. And then I I said, the only way to know for sure is by studying women, asking women what happens. That was the most scientific approach to to just ask women what happens to their pain response when they have vaginal stimulation. So I did that with, I recruited Beverly Whipple as my doctoral student. And uh, we did that study and we found that in fact, the vaginal self-stimulation has a very powerful pain blocking action. That's really how I got started. And then to find out what the nerve, what sensory nerves carry the pain blocking signal, I um, identified in the animal studies by doing surgery, uh, differential surgery, cutting different nerves. I identified that the pelvic nerve carries the, the pain blocking signal. And then to test that in women, the only way to test that in women would be to study women who have spinal cord injury at different levels that would block the access of the various nerves to the brain. So when I did that, my most severe case condition was to be women who have a complete severed spinal cord high up that would block all the possible nerve pathways to the brain. And that should block the ability of the vaginal stimulation to block pain. And what I found, to my surprise, was that those women still felt their vaginal stimulation
0: so someone could be in a wheelchair and be paralyzed down not be able to feel their legs and if she's a
1: woman she could still have an orgasm and feel stimulation there and this was a shock to everybody it was hard to believe because they had no sensation uh, below the the injury and no voluntary control of the movement but they did have menstrual cramps and they could feel a vaginal stimulation of all things that's great news for them Well, it was great news for them, and it was a shock to them because they had been told by their doctors that their sex life is over, that they, they have no sensation, and they never tried. For years and years, they came into the lab and they tried the stimulation. They said, I can feel this. That's great. And for guys, a guy in a wheelchair because
0: he needs a physiological response, can it work for him or is it just for women?
1: Well, this is a big question that I'm very interested in right now. I think there's a possibility... Anecdotally, I have contacted some men with complete spinal cord injury like that, and they say that they have no sensation, no genital sensation at all, but they can feel their prostate. And the prostate has, in the embryo, the the. Uh, let me just get to the bottom line with the with the women because I identified the mechanism by which they can feel the vagina is via the vagus nerves. And I did that by doing brain imaging, functional MRI of the brain, looking at the region of the brain to which the vagus nerves project. The vagus nerves are the cranial uh, nerve 10. They they go outside the spinal cord. They go directly from the brain to various organs in the body and from various organs in the body, bypassing the spinal cord completely. Uh, So they're intact in these women with the uh, severed spinal cord and I saw that with the functional MRI, that when they applied the vaginal self-stimulation, the region of the brain that the vagus nerve projects to is activated, and those women had orgasms. And that's how I got the first data on where in the brain orgasms occur, and that was the first evidence in women of where orgasms occur in the brain. It was in those women.
0: Uh-huh, right. So it's kind of
1: like you were looking at other things and you stumbled across right. the whole subject of orgasm. Exactly. So in men, because the prostate gland has the same uh, embryonic origin as the cervix, the cervix in women, uh, that there's a possibility that the vagus nerve carries sensation from the prostate in men. We're looking into that possibility. So that may account for why men with a complete uh, severed spinal cord say they can feel nothing else, but they can feel their prostate. This is possibly a, a route for them to have orgasms, but you know we have to look into that.
0: Great, great. So you've been doing all this all this work on orgasms. How would you describe an orgasm? Because I think it's something that's not very well defined today. And we don't really know where it comes from. What is an orgasm for
1: you? How do you describe it? Well, in terms of, of the bodily physiology, uh, what's common in women and men is that the heart rate approximately doubles, the blood pressure approximately doubles, uh, the pupils dilate, they become insensitive to pain. Of course, men, there's the ejaculation and women uh, some women also ejaculate and the evidence is that there is a, a prostate in, in women, it's called the Skene's gland, uh, and that releases a fluid in many women, uh, that, a small amount of fluid, maybe a teaspoonful, and that has the chemical constituents of, of uh, male seminal fluid. So there is ejaculation in, in uh, many women and, of course, in men. So those are some of the physiological responses. And then in the brain there's uh, activation uh, throughout the brain. So orgasm, uh, I think the, the closest thing that orgasm shares, uh, the closest function that's shared by orgasm is, is uh, epileptic seizure, where there's also a uh, very widespread activation throughout the brain. And many people with epileptic seizures describe them as being orgasmic. Well, I mean, that's interesting, because when we describe orgasm, it's kind of like this
0: rush in your, right? A lot of people talk about this build and it's kind of like an explosion in your head or it's this rush in your head and it kind of does feel like it's all throughout your your head is it the same for men and women or is it because a lot of people talk about the women these days that they're more orgasmic than men that's one of the common things we say but but is it true like based on your scientific research are men and
1: women different or are we experiencing the same thing we've looked at the brain activity in men and women and what i can say is that during orgasm the similarities in brain activity are greater than any differences that we see. So the only major difference is after orgasm, uh, when there's a refractory period in men, that is when genital stimulation no longer can produce another orgasm until some time passes, it's called the the refractory period, as opposed to women who can uh, have multiple orgasms continuing uh, one after the other. Uh, So that is a major difference. In terms of the quality, a qualitative description of orgasms, there was an interesting study by Vance and Wagner some years ago in which they asked uh, college men and women to describe their orgasms in writing. And then they edited out any reference to any specific body parts. And then they gave the descriptions to um, sex therapists and and psychiatrists and uh, gynecologists to ask them to, to tell which, which description was written by a man versus which description was written by a woman. And they gave them uh, something like 50, 50 descriptions. The experts were not able to discriminate uh, the descriptions produced by men and women versus women. So, in other words, the descriptions of intense uh, pleasure and intense uh, arousal and activation and excitement— Uh, those kinds of uh, descriptions were uh, equivalent in men and women, indistinguishable. That's actually good to hear because a lot of the communication
0: differences between men and women are kind of said to be about we feel things differently, we experience things differently. And even in like stereotypes, in, in arguments and stuff, I think that comes up a lot. So it's kind of good to hear that there's some common ground so we can actually have a pretty good understanding of what women are going through when they're having an orgasm. I was wondering, as you were talking about that, the quality of orgasms can be very different depending on the time, the person, the actual experience of it can be extremely varied. And I was wondering if that's something that showed up in your your research, basically are people different? So two women are different or like a woman at a different time. Is it going to be a completely different experience each time, just dependent on it? Or is it pretty standard in terms of how it shows up scientifically?
1: Oh, uh, well, there are a lot of questions
0: in, in what you just asked me. If we say it's one specific situation, it's not like they're varying the situation or the partners or anything. If it's just like self-stimulation, say in the MRI, if you followed the same woman, like through several different uh, functional MRIs and she was self-stimulating it each time in the same protocol or, or however you asked her to do it, would it actually show up quite differently
1: each time? I would say that the uh, the similarities are greater than the differences, really in general. The uh, types of org, the intensities can change with uh, physical condition. I mean, uh, with... Uh, uh, when uh, I've been exercising a lot, my muscles are strong, my muscles contract more forcefully during orgasm, and it feels more pleasurable. Certainly, uh, that factor. Um, also, depending on who you're with, I mean, there's sex and orgasm, and then there's love and sex and orgasm. And when, when love and passion are combined, that's a much more intense orgasm. Uh, when I have an orgasm with the woman I love, that's the most intense um. Most intense experience, so there's certainly factors that can modulate the intensity of orgasm. Uh, who you're with certainly that has a that has a factor.
0: Is that something you've been able to? That I mean, that strikes me. I something pretty
1: yeah, difficult to research. No, no, I haven't haven't tried to, you know, ask people to uh, come in with different individuals. <laughs> <laughs> come this person you don't like, you can go in with them today, and tomorrow
0: you'll come in with a person you really like.
1: Yeah, it, it's. Uh, <laughs> Haven't, I'm not think, sure that's ever going to happen. That, one, that one's a little hard to get through the uh, Ethics Committee. Uh, I haven't tried that one. Um, the University Ethics Committee um, might have something to say about that. Um, I haven't studied it, but uh, uh, there are reports that the, the, uh, the likelihood or, and the intensity of orgasm can change over the menstrual cycle with uh, hormone treatment, certainly uh, uh, testosterone in uh, women and in men can uh, has been described as increasing desire and intensity of, of uh, pleasure so there are hormones
0: so high, higher testosterone level yeah uh, or is it just does it have to be supplementation
1: higher testosterone level if only if there's an insufficiency of testosterone in other words if testosterone levels are normal then adding testosterone doesn't do anything
0: do you know what that normal ratio would be? Because we've spoken about testosterone before, and I don't know if you're aware, but there's been a decline in men. The normal standard over time has been going downwards. For instance, we talk about a level, I like to have mine at 800 to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. Often the typical, we've, had, we've tested some people in our coaching programs and stuff, that'd be like 200, 250. It's pretty low. And then so we get them on some diets and stuff, and they will raise it, and they tend to feel a lot better have a better sexual life, kind of what the the stuff you're talking about. So I was just wondering if you had any ideas about the norms.
1: No, I don't know what the norms are. I know that they're, uh, in general, uh, studies that have been done in women uh, correlating uh, testosterone levels with uh, their desire that doesn't show any significant correlation in men. It is known that if there is insufficiency, then, then the testosterone will uh, give them a boost. But if they're in normal levels, and different people have different normal levels. So this would show up in the test, you, they'd be having a more intense orgasm? You'd see more activity? Or? Well, I wouldn't want to speculate because... Uh, You're asking whether there will be a correlation between the perceived intensity of orgasm and any perceived change in brain activity or or level of of brain activity. And and that's a very difficult study to do. And we haven't done it. And uh, we do ask the women to um, uh, give us a rating of their orgasmic intensity from 1 to 10. Uh, We always do ask that. But um, the individual differences, the variability is is, uh, probably greater than the... um, it's hard to get a, a significant with that kind of um, analysis. That's just very difficult to do uh, technically. It's very difficult to do. There's so, so many complexities.
0: It's hard to connect to the scans?
1: Well, what I can say is that when we analyze the change, we record continuously as the uh, uh, women and men are uh, doing the self-stimulation and then having an orgasm and then uh, afterwards. And then we ask them to press a button when their orgasm starts. And then we take the 10 seconds immediately after the button press and compare it to the 10 seconds immediately before the button press. So in other words, they're highly aroused just on the verge of orgasm. And then they go over into orgasm. And we compare the activity under those in those two 10-second epochs and group all the activity. And what we see is that there is an overall increase going over into orgasm uh, so even though they're highly aroused, but not having an orgasm, their activity is is lower in uh, throughout the brain than when they go over into orgasm. So in that sense, we can correlate the intensity, the perceived intensity. We haven't looked at the perceived intensity of orgasm per se, but but the perceived intensity of high arousal immediately before going over into orgasm is lower in the brain. The brain activity is lower immediately prior to orgasm, then immediately after, or immediately at the onset of orgasm. So we do see that kind of um, difference in brain activity. Great, great. One of the
0: other things, I think this is maybe going to move a little bit outside of the MRI area. Um, I'm not actually sure it might all connect up, but one of the things I was looking through from, from your work was the fact that it seems like there's quite a bit of flexibility in terms of where orgasms come from for different people. And this can vary from the genitals and even other areas. Could you talk about some of the most common areas where you, you, you see this kind of activity and yeah. some of the rarer types of stimulation people get? So we can get a feel for the kind of like the sensory stimulation people. It's kind of like different people can experience it through different ways. And I think a lot of people don't understand the variety of that.
1: Well, uh, one of the surprising things that we saw is that when we map the, uh, where the um, uh, genital system projects to in the brain, that was an initial study to see where the, uh, where the clitoris, the vagina, and the cervix project to in the brain and the penis and the testicles and the scrotum, the, uh, the prostate, the rectum. Uh, we've done all that kind of mapping of the uh, genital sensory responses. Uh, one of the big surprises, to me at least, was that when we uh, asked the, the men and the women to do uh, self-stimulation of other parts of the body, like the hand, the face, and the nipple. We got activation, uh, first of all, with the genital mapping. We found that all the genital regions in men and women project to the same region of the sensory cortex. As a region of the, of the sensory cortex. You know, the body is mapped onto the cortex in a point-to-point representation. So the hands and the face and the feet are all in, in slightly different Uh, locations on the brain in a very uh, systematic pattern. It's called uh, the—Wilder Penfield uh, was the one who did the mapping originally, um, and uh, he called it the homunculus or the little person uh, because the body is mapped onto onto the sensory cortex. So we see that all the genital regions project to the same general region of the sensory cortex in men and in women. And that's very consistent with what Penfield mapped actually in the, in the midline, uh, deep in the midline of the, uh, between the two hemispheres of the cortex, right next to where the feet are represented, actually. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, the, the well, because feet, some people have feet fetishes, right? Exactly, and feet, foot orgasms. And so that, that could be uh, a basis for uh, some of the uh, foot fetishes, that there, it's just adjacent to the genital region. How is that possible? Why is it the fact that they're next to each
0: other in the brain that that could maybe create some translation, some transfer or cross-talk? Split, spread of point.
1: activation. Ramachandran um, is a neurophysiologist in, uh, in California, and he, he reported in his book, uh, The uh, Phantoms in the Brain, that uh, a man and a woman, each of whom had a, uh, an amputated foot. And uh, they said that uh, after the amputation, they now have orgasms. They feel like the orgasms are in their foot as well as in their phantom foot, as well as in their genitals, because there's a sprouting, there's a spread of activation. When uh, a part of the cortex that responds to a particular re- body region, when that's vacated, when the the neurons projecting to it uh, die out, then the uh, existing neurons take over, and, uh, or the adjacent neurons sprout into that region. So that's an established phenomenon, neurophysiological phenomenon. So uh, when the foot is gone, the genital uh, nerves, the pathways from the genital system project, spread out into the vacated region that's adjacent to it on the cortex. So when the, when the genitals are stimulated, it feels like the genitals are stimulated, but it feels like the feet are also stimulated. And now the amputee said that their orgasms feel larger now. They feel it in their phantom foot as well as in the genitals.
0: It sounds like they because it's taken up more space the genitals era that's what is potentially given them that greater experience i don't know if you've looked into this is just something i was thinking about as you were talking about that is if you've looked into things like brain training or the fact if you do something that we have things about like when you're training to learn a sport or you're training to learn a skill if you repeat that activity the myelin that the brain develops around that we've kind of accepted that the the brain can change and adapt to that so you think it would be possible for someone who is more sexually experienced who basically practices sex more to develop a larger area of the brain dedicated to that just because they're spending more time in it?
1: Well, it's possible. You're, again, you're, you're raising some excellent... <laughs> uh, as you were talking, I, I, I thought of three, three different uh, themes. Uh, so yeah. well, let me see if I can, uh, if I can uh, respond. The reason I mentioned the foot was that uh, in answer to your question about the uh, other regions, that when we map the nipple for context... Uh, what we found was that the nipple self-stimulation projected exactly to the genital sensory cortex in women as well as in men. First, we saw it in women, and um, I said, this is really strange because uh, it's not some, the, the, the nipple stimulation should go to the chest area, if anything, rather than the, the genital region. And um, I said, now we have to reconsider the, the, the classical map. And uh, when I mention that to my male uh, neurophysiological colleagues, they all say, yeah, that's, uh, that's a, uh, we have to expand the, uh, the, the map. And uh, when I tell my woman neuroscience colleagues, they say, yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nothing new to the women that nipple stimulation feels erotic. I mean, it projects. We see it overlapping, exactly overlapping with the genital uh, Projection region, so so uh, it activates the same area. That could be why nipple stimulation feels erotic. Well, we see now we see the same thing in men. We see the, that the the nipple stimulation projects to uh, exactly the same area as the genital, as the penis, the the testicles, the, the prostate, the rectum. It all projects to the same uh, the same region as in women. So that genital sensory cortex is uh, responds not only to the genitals, but it responds to at least to nipple stimulation. Here's another surprise that we had that in, uh, one of the control, and this is an answer to another th- point you raised about uh, the mental activity. When we, as a control, we asked the, the women and the men, just think about stimulating clitoris or vagina or cervix or nipple. Just think about it. Don't do it. Uh, we want to see, you know, as a control, we want to see the, the difference. And what we found was that Just thinking about the stimulation activated the same area of the genital sensory cortex. Just thinking about nipple or or clitoral or vaginal stimulation just activates the same region. But there is a difference. And there is the prefrontal cortex does become very active when they're thinking about the stimulation, much more than when they're really actually applying the stimulation. In other words, Doing clitoral self-stimulation activates the genital sensory cortex, uh, but not much Not much is happening in the prefrontal cortex. But when they think about stimulating the clitoris, then the same genital sensory cortex region gets active. And in addition, the prefrontal cortex becomes tremendously active.
0: So in terms of, for people at home who aren't so scientific, what does it mean that the prefrontal yeah. cortex...
1: The prefrontal cortex is the, is the so-called executive part of the brain. That's the part that was uh, cut off in uh, frontal lobotomies uh, before there were tranquilizers. That's the part of the brain, that's the very front of the brain, front of the cortex, that is supposed to be uh, what makes us human. Uh, you know, the, it's executive function and thinking and, and caring and, and feeling. And, and Can you say it's the conscious brain,
0: the more controlled aspect of what we do or self-discipline? And-
1: well, it could be the planning brain, the discipline all the kinds of uh, things that we think make us uh, when you say conscious um, you know we're conscious of light and sound and touch and those are in different parts of the brain but the but the planning and the and the thinking and the uh, ethics all that kind of um, processes that we think make us human compared to the animals uh, although there are questions about that if we kill each other which animals don't Animals don't tend to kill their own species, and and we're unique in that. I'd say advanced with uh, air quotes around it. I'm not so sure that that's advancement, but uh, it is complex thinking. There's no question about that. And that's all a function of the prefrontal cortex. So thinking about the stimulation activates that part of the brain much more than the actual stimulation does much more much more so would you say
0: because yeah. i mean this is what, obviously one of the arguments that comes a long time is sex more about the physical aspect or is
1: it more about the mental aspect really well, we we studied women who claimed that they can think off that they claim that they can have orgasms just by thinking without any physical stimulation and i was very skeptical now, I did this with uh, Gina Ogden, who is a sex therapist, who said she has many women who said they can have orgasms just by thinking. I did it with uh, Gina and, um, and Beverly Whipple to test whether they're really having orgasms. We measured their heart rate, blood pressure, pupil diameter, and, and uh, pain thresholds. And, um, uh, and we, had, we asked them, 10 women who said they could think of we asked them each to have a, an orgasm by physical self-stimulation and then have an orgasm by thinking and we measured we took all the physiological measures and we found that the increases in the physiological measures were equivalent when they had orgasms by by physical stimulation or by thinking so they really did have thought-induced orgasms and now we've been studying some of the women um, in the scanner and we see when they say they have orgasms, they, they're activating uh, many, but not all, but many of the same brain regions that other people, that, that, that uh, women have, that, that are activated when they have uh, orgasm by physical self-stimulation. Right. Because that kind
0: of fits in, in terms of practical take-home advice. We often talk about how, like, if a woman's not relaxed, if she's not in the right mental state, then she finds it difficult. You know, she's not comfortable. She finds it difficult to orgasm. Uh, We talk about things like distraction and stuff. How would you relate the research to these kind of things that we we, say?
1: Well, What we find is that women can have orgasms by stimulating clitoris or vagina or cervix. And each of those regions have different nerves that carry sensation to the brain. The clitoris has the pudendal nerve and the the vagina has the pelvic nerve and the, the cervix has the hypogastric nerve. They all project to the same general region of the sensory cortex, but in in slightly different places. The qualities of the orgasms elicited by stimulating clitoris are different from those uh, that they describe from stimulating vagina and different from those uh, stimulating the cervix. And they say that clitoral stimulation is more external and more localized. When they have an orgasm, it feels more localized to the clitoral region. But when they have an orgasm from vaginal stimulation... It feels much more, much deeper in the body, much more whole body involving. And cervical stimulation uh, is uh, described as very intense. Uh, one woman said a shower of stars when she had a cervical orgasm. Now, what we see is that each of those, because they they each have different nerves carrying sensation to different parts of the sensory cortex, and if the women apply the stimulate these different regions simultaneously or concurrently they describe their orgasms as more intense and more complex and uh, more enjoyable. So what I would uh, suggest is that adding stimulation of clitoris plus vagina, plus cervix, plus nipple can intensify the orgasm because it's activating more neurons in the brain. They're all going to slightly different regions like in a cluster of grapes it's like stimulating all the all the grapes in a cluster at the same time you can have an orgasm from stimulating one grape but if you stimulate all the grapes in the cluster then there's more neurons that are all going to the orgasm mechanism and the whole thing is going to be more uh, complex more intense so that would be a way of uh, the more erotic stimulation that can be applied concurrently the more uh, the more pleasurable the more intense more complex. So that would be one implication of our research. And also, of course, thinking about or having fantasies can, at the same time, since thinking really does have orgasm-inducing potency, adding that, the more stimuli that can be added the more intense it's going to be.
0: So mental is like this other big layer. It's like another big layer to the physical stimuli you may be giving. And more tends to be better. I'm sure it's not the same for every woman and everything. But overall, it tends to be like more stimuli is is better.
1: Yeah. Another aspect of that is that some women say that uh, it's easier to induce an orgasm from clitoral stimulation than from vaginal stimulation. But I use a metaphor of uh, manual transmission car. A lot of people in the United States don't know what I'm talking about because they, everybody drives an automatic. Except there are very few manual transmission cars left in the United States, but uh, I guess they're much more popular in uh, in England and Europe. I use the metaphor of um, for many women, vaginal or cervical stimulation is like fifth gear, as opposed to clitoral stimulation, which is first gear. So it's possible to start the car going. If you're just in fifth gear, you can do it if you can do it carefully, but it's much easier to start in first and then shift through the gear. So it's, in other words, rather than just starting with vaginal stimulation, uh, slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, maybe in a woman who finds that clitoral stimulation uh, is more, more easily induces orgasm than, than vaginal or cervical stimulation, start with clitoral stimulation, get the arousal increased, and then do the vaginal and cervical stimulation. It's like then shifting into fifth gear. Once, you, once you're going, you shift into fifth gear and there's more momentum. So it actually intensifies the, the response. But it has to get started. So you have to start, have to start slow and then uh, build up the excitation and then go to the higher momentum, higher inertia systems of the maybe the vagina and cervix. Now, that, that doesn't apply to everybody. But many women do say that's the case. It sounds also like you start
0: with a few different one source of stimulation, say the clitoris, which is also the area that women are most used to. If they're masturbating, you know, they've had more practice with that, obviously, just because it's the one that they can uh, really play with the most. Um, and breast and the
1: nipple stimulation
0: also. Absolutely.
1: At, at the outset.
0: Yeah. Back to my point about experience and kind of practice. Wouldn't that, like, if the girls girl been practicing since she was, like, in her teenage years, and she's been self-stimulating her, her clitoris and her, and her nipples, then they're going to be better developed than her vagina at first, just because they've been used more and the neurons have been developed more in that area, kind of like as if we're training anything else in our lives.
1: Well, it's possible. I don't know of any study that actually demonstrated that, but uh, it's logical. I guess I'm
0: thinking from an anecdotal, because
1: I've, I've been with women who
0: are not interested in the clitoral stimulation at all, versus some that are completely the opposite. And sometimes it tends to like fit with their stories that some girls have just uh, never practiced masturbation for whatever reason, or they have been really focused on that. And it seems to to kind of fit with their comfort level and what they're used to more than anything else. uh,
1: Yes, uh, certainly um, uh, I've spoken to sex therapists and they say that uh, one of the most effective uh, treatments for women who claim that they are an orgasmic Is to um, encourage the women to start masturbating. They haven't been doing that, so to start masturbating and see what uh, what kinds of stimulation do it. Learn from their own um, self stimulation. Learn about their own bodies by uh, exploration, and then that's effective in um, reducing the the incidence of anorgasmia or overcoming the anorgasmia, and and then they can start uh, becoming orgasmic. So that kind of practice is certainly um, effective, clinically effective. You were asking about practice and self-stimulation. One of the things that we're developing is a neurofeedback uh, system where the people in the scanner can see their own brain activity in uh, real time. And uh, the question there is, if we can see our own brain activity in real time, to what extent can we control it voluntarily and can we make it activate or deactivate as necessary specific parts of the brain?
0: Giving us uh, more control, I guess, like learning to have more control. So like, like in the examples of the women that are thinking off, they seem to have a lot of control over that. They've learned how, how to do it. I look at it the same way. as like we learn how to meditate. It takes quite a while to do that as well. It's like a skill. Right. Okay. There was one thing I wanted to talk a bit about, about stimulation is, is uh, the rectum, you know, the rectum, the anal area, because we talk a lot about anal orgasms. And I think that's somewhat something that like a lot of people, like, you know, there's no such thing as anal orgasms. And w- no, that's, w- not,
1: that's not true. Many people describe anal orgasms. And I mentioned that the pelvic nerve carries sensation from the vagina. Another branch of the pelvic nerve carries sensation from the rectum. Uh, It's not surprising. In fact, uh, when uh, it's very common for women when they're giving birth and the baby is coming through the birth canal, they describe it as they they have an urge to defecate because they're confusing the true source of the stimulation. So if uh, stimulation of the pelvic nerve via the vagina can activate orgasms, then stimulation of the pelvic nerve via the rectum uh, can also stimulate orgasms. And if people say they have orgasms from rectal stimulation who's going to deny it? And there's a a neuroanatomical basis for it. So I'd like to get
0: your opinion on this. This is like a a technique that's talked about for for someone who doesn't yet have anal orgasms and maybe they're not really into it that much. People talk about associating anal penetration with an orgasm in order to learn to have have it be pleasurable for it to have orgasms that way. Because the idea is that when you're linking having an orgasm, a, a vaginal orgasm with the penetration at the same time, those those senses start to get more linked together, and, and thus the pleasure from the orgasm starts transferring to the anal penetration at the same time. I don't know if you've got any perspective on that.
1: Well, I mean, it makes sense, but I, I don't have any evidence one way or the other, but it, it's a logical um, that that could occur. I guess the other tangent to look at is
0: the kind of the, the big differences in in how dominant and supplicant. I don't know if you're gonna have any like any any of your work that relates to this. I did notice it in some of your papers, so I'm I'm just wondering on your your ideas around it. Some people prefer dominant sex, they prefer to be the dominant person, some people prefer to be the, the sub whereas we call them, the who doesn't really do anything. They just kind of relax and, and they prefer to get things done to them. Have you seen anything in research relating to that or maybe the prefrontal cortex or, or anything like that which could indicate why, why that happens?
1: No, I haven't seen any research on that, and I haven't done anything on that. There's so much that we don't know about uh, sexuality, and there's so much uh, pressure against uh, research, and so it's so difficult to get funding for research. It's just, I mean, these are all questions that people are very interested in, but to actually do research on it, that's a whole other uh, problem. The answer is, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. It sounds like you'd love to know what the answer Well, um, it would be uh, interesting. A question, a related question is is uh, BDSM uh, a group who, um, they're a very interesting uh, uh, neurophysiological question. Are they, are they uh, insensitive to pain or is the pain uh, somehow converted into uh, arousal? Without being aversive, because they have control over the uh, intensity of the pain. You know, if they can say that uh, if they can stop stop the pain when it gets too intense, uh, then it can be uh, arousing without being aversive. Or is there some kind of cross wiring in those uh, people who prefer painful stimulation? Does it really produce an erotic? Uh, does it really activate the erotic uh, regions of the brain? Which is a whole other very interesting question that we don't know yet. What is the difference? And this is something that we're studying now. What is the difference between genital stimulation that feels uh, just prosaic, like when you sit down or this genital stimulation, uh, as opposed to when the genital stimulation feels erotic? What is the difference in the brain regions? Where is the erotic sense perceived in the brain? That's something that uh, I think is a very interesting question. And um, we have some some insights about it, we have to, we're following up on it, but um, have some ideas of what's different between prosaic genital stimulation and erotic genital stimulation in terms of the brain. So different people for different preferences, I mean, it may uh, turn out, you know, if we can identify where the erotic region of the brain is, if there is such a thing, then um, maybe people who have specific preferences, they just happen to be able to activate that part of the brain and... and and what if we could learn to activate that part of the brain what would that do to depression or uh, anxiety or uh, if we can activate learn how to activate the pleasurable the parts of the brain that give us pleasure what would that do to um, all the problems that we that we have so there's much more that we don't know than that we do know and it's really um, it's a wide open area for research so you're talking about pain and I don't know if you've
0: seen this website. It's called beautifulagony.com.
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I, some of the pictures I have in my book, I took from, uh, a, I think a Sweet Agony or something like that. Yeah, the facial expressions during orgasm, uh, almost indistinguishable from uh, facial expressions of pain. And one of the interesting things is that there was just a, um, a very interesting um, seminar at our university uh, from a Miklos Palkovitz. Uh, from Hungary, who was uh, studying brain activation during during pain. And every region that he identified, with the exception of, uh, of maybe the nucleus accumbens, every region that he said is activated by pain, we see activated by orgasm. So it may be that there's a, an inhibitory, you know, since we see that orgasm inhibits pain, maybe in all those regions, there are Inhibitory neurons that we can't detect with the functional MRI, that we're turning on the orgasm neurons and they turn on inhibitory neurons to pain, we can't see where the inhibition is. FMR just doesn't have that ability. Uh, but it's remarkable that so many of the same regions are activated the, the nucleus, uh, rather, the, the uh, anterior commissure and the insula. Those are two pain regions that are strongly activated during orgasm. And then the amygdala, the hippocampus, the periaqueductal gray, those areas activated by pain, activated during
0: orgasm. I guess it could also explain the BDSM whole thing. If these areas are close together, they're they're closely linked, as you said. Like it's easy for, I guess, like uh, for an allergy, you just tell me if this is not correct. If, if there are just slight movements in these areas in the brain, they could just overlap, and then, and then you've got combined senses, you're liking pain more because now it's linked to this pleasure,
1: or... It's very possible. That is really a very strong possibility. We just have to do the research to find out. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So uh, there was one
0: piece of interest I was just curious how you did it. You said cervical orgasms. In my experience for the cervix, quite, quite a few women find that a little bit painful um, right. when well, you hit it.
1: Yes, it's true that's, uh, it's painful, but if it's stimulated at the time when the pain is being blocked by high level sexual activity and high arousal, then that intense stimulation might be arousing, the, the aversive edge might be taken off, and it may be converted into just the pleasure. That definitely fits my experience. The too. intense arousal without the aversion because the pain-blocking mechanism has taken over. But if, if you do it too early, then it could be aversive. That's actually very very practical. It's like stay
0: away from the cervix early on in, in, in the sexual intercourse. Um, you, don't want, you don't want to start banging it. Um, and a bit, a bit later, actually, it could be very pleasurable for the woman if you're hitting it quite hard uh, at, at times. But I was actually wondering how you did the science of only stimulating
1: the cervix? Well, this was in the, um, uh, the, the way I came to that conclusion is that, um, when we did the study of the effect of vaginal stimulation versus cervical stimulation on elevating pain thresholds, blocking pain, uh, I had, uh, two separate devices, two separate stimulators. And for the cervical stimulator, uh, I had a, um, I used a, uh, a diaphragm with a, a Velcro disc on it, and that was attached to a, a rod that the women uh, had a, a handle, so they could push directly on the, the diaphragm. It was a plastic rod with a, with a modified tampon on it, and so it was they could push directly against the cervix, back and forth, push and pull against the cervix without stimulating the clitoris. And uh, it was very, very minimal stimulation of, of the vagina. So some of the women who had the spinal cord transection, well, none of them could feel this, the clitoris. So clitoral stimulation was, was out. It could be some vaginal stimulation, but they were mainly stimulating the cervix. And some of them had orgasms from that stimulation. And as a matter of fact, one of the women said that she had a very, uh, the uh, diaphragm, was over the cervix and protecting the cervix and centering the stimulator on the cervix. When she pulled back on the rod, so it created a suction on the cervix. And you know, she would push and pull on the on the diaphragm. She said, when she pulled on the, when she pulled on this on the on the rod and it was attached to the diaphragm, it, it created a suction on the cervix, and that was extremely pleasurable. She said she never felt that before.
0: Well, you could patent that for some kind of new device, potentially. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm, I'm not kidding either. I know could. Yeah. Be. Well, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's how I, I differentiated, and also the uh, the the area of activation by the cervical stimulation was different from the area of activation from the vagina or the or the clitoris. So there was a study by Winifred Cutler where she she asked women approximately does the clitoris, the vagina, and the cervix do they contribute to orgasms? And 95% of the women said that the clitoris contributes to orgasm, clitoral stimulation contributes to orgasm. Uh, 66% of the women said that vaginal stimulation contributes to orgasm, and 35% of the women said that cervical stimulation contributes to orgasm. So it's a small percentage, a third of those women. There's 128 women in her study. So there was a, a substantial number of women saying that they, that they can feel the cervix and it contributes to the orgasm. That's great.
0: Those, those are very useful statistics as well to give people a bit more perspective on this because, you know, everyone's different. So a lot of this depends on communication and stuff. That's why we always have to come back to communication because...
1: Communication is critical. I mean, that communication between partners, it takes courage for the, for the partner to say what feels good and what doesn't feel good. Tell the other partner what, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. In the heat of passion, maybe it would be a little bit too, um, uh, too stultifying to have a conversation like that. But, but you know, there are various ways of indicating that or communicating it verbally, non-verbally at various times. But, you know, that communication is, is crucial.
0: Yeah. Well, your work
1: is, is very useful
0: from this kind of perspective because... Basically, you're kind of legitimizing a lot of things that people have, right? So I have anal orgasms, and I feel I feel weird about it, right? Because I grew up in a conservative background, and it's not kind of the thing I should, you know, I, I think is is correct, right? But when you explain it in these terms where you can explain, well, it's just there's an association between the two areas of the brain. It's the same place. It's kind of normal that sometimes there's some overlap. I think people can be a lot more accepting of themselves and the way they are and be freer to communicate it and also to explore their own sexuality. And, like, it's not a big deal, so... Nipple stimulation stimulates me that's a bonus, not a, it's not a downside to your sexuality. but I think your work's great for that for clarifying a lot of these points. I was wondering, are there any other lifestyle factors that you would say have significant impacts on our orgasms in terms of like negative or positive? We spoke about a couple of things like
1: um, well, certainly recreational drugs, they do have effects on orgasm, uh, especially uh, cocaine, you know cocaine rush people describe it as feeling orgasmic. And and, uh, one of the major effects of cocaine is to release dopamine. And there's a lot of evidence that uh, dopamine plays a um, a stimulatory role in orgasm.
0: Right. I mean, I guess we're saying there are like potentially... You could take cocaine and have sexual intercourse and it would give you a bigger orgasm. Not that it we're advising anything crazy like that. but
1: uh, Yeah, I, I'm not advising it. And, but I mean, this is just based on the literature that uh, that's what cocaine does. And that's what people described. I, I mean, that's a lifestyle using recreational drugs.
0: So they, as I understand it, they kind of, after cocaine abuse for a while, you kind of burn out your dopamine receptors.
1: Yeah. So, so then you would have, it would be more difficult. They down-regulate. You downregulate it. You don't burn them out, but uh, you just reduce the numbers and or the sensitivity. Yeah, uh, another uh, negative uh, uh, lifestyle is uh, with opiate use, like heroin, morphine, and heroin have uh, an inhibitory effect on orgasm, and um, actually uh, people have stronger orgasms uh, when they uh, come off the opiate drugs. Is that compared to before they started? Morphine in the first yeah, place. Yeah, The opiates have a have an inhibitory effect, and when when people come off it, uh, they get nervous and and uh, shaky, and that's when they say that they their their orgasms are more intense. Is a disinhibition. It's kind of like positive feedback for quitting. <laughs> it's like.
0: If you're in a rehab um, for heroin abuse, then um, that's potentially something you can put in front of you as a, a positive. You can look forward to it. Yeah, look, look forward to it. Like, uh, no, I've quit. I've quit morphine. Now, now I'm going to get some
1: benefits from quitting. A benefit of quitting, just yeah, that's it's probably true. But I don't know mm-hmm. if any if anybody has recommended that. But um,
0: how about psychedelics or psilocybin or LSD um, or anything like that? Yeah,
1: I mean, they changing levels of consciousness. And awareness of, of sensory stimuli you know, or any, any drugs like that, marijuana or, or uh, psychedelics uh, can um, change the quality of, uh, of stimulation. I remember uh, speaking to one woman who said that uh, actually related to um, cervical stimulation. She said that um, uh, she finds cervical stimulation to be extremely aversive A very, very uh, irritating and and, uh, very, very uh, uh, strong and aversive stimulation. But when she tried marijuana, it became, uh, uh, it took the edge off it and it became uh, intensely pleasurable. So uh, again, that's changing the aversive quality. You may not change the the arousing quality uh, and that could convert it into a pleasurable stimulus. Well, as far as lifestyle, exercise, I, I mentioned at the beginning that uh, when my muscle tone is high, uh, relatively high, my orgasms are more intense. Because one of the big thing, one of the big uh, effects of of orgasm is muscle tension. The cerebellum, which controls muscle muscle tone, is very strongly activated in men and women during orgasm, uh, very reliably. And so, so uh,
0: just just being more physically fit
1: having the muscle. Yeah, it, it, it makes the orgasms more intense and pleasurable. You know, the muscles contract all over the body and that that uh, when they're strong, it feels really it feels really good. I don't know about different, uh, different supplements, dietary supplements. I don't know if there's any really good evidence on that. One of the things we just kind of connected with but not really looked at is uh, just the nature versus nurture.
0: If I'm born with a certain orgasmic capacity, is is that how I am? Or is it something that I can learn to get better at over time? We've we've kind of been talking around the subject, but it'd be good to hear your opinion.
1: There's really virtually nothing known about what causes anorgasmia, people who who can have orgasms. Uh, It's something very interesting. I'm actually, I'm studying the refractory period in men to see what happens, what does not get activated in response to genital stimulation During the refractory period, as opposed to before the refractory period, what gets blocked, what what pathways in the brain uh, leading to orgasm from the, I mean, certainly during the refractory period, you can feel the genital stimulation, it just doesn't get, doesn't feel erotic, it doesn't get to the orgasmic process. It could even feel like pain if someone was stimulating during that period. It's uncomfortable versus... It can be. Some people describe it as being uncomfortable, but other people say it's just not It's not uncomfortable. It's just not... I'm aware of it. It's not numb. It's not interesting. It's not interesting. It doesn't get anywhere. So I think that could be a useful model uh, if we can understand what fails to get activated during the refractory period, then maybe that's what fails to get activated in people with anorgasmia. And with the neurofeedback system that, that we're developing, maybe it's possible to get around the blockage. If we can see what gets blocked, maybe we can learn to overcome the block uh, voluntarily if we can see our own brain activity. So that could be a, an approach. And the fact that women who claim that they're an orgasmic can learn to become orgasmic by masturbating and giving getting permission to masturbate, what it means to me is that there are um, there must be very many uh, psychological factors that intervene and that can uh, influence um, the the, uh, ability or inability to have orgasms. I'm so surprised that, you know, just thinking about stimulation will activate the sensory areas of the brain, the, the parts of the brain that are supposed to be classically described as responding to physical stimulation. We can activate them by just thinking about it. God knows what we can do. You know, this is silly. it's really... It's
0: silly. kind of like if if we learn to visualize, fantasize more, these kind of things that people talk about, what you can kind of learn to enhance your, your experience of sex if you get more immersed. We talk on this show, I don't know if you'll be able to relate to this, we talk about getting more immersed in sex because some people tend to be in their heads A lot, especially with today's, you know, the way the modern world is, we're looking at computers a lot. We're not really interacting with other people as much in a lot of cases, depending on your job. Maybe if you're in IT, it's work. Work tends to be worse and we tend to have more guys in IT who are listening to the show uh, due to that, I think. Just because they're getting less human interaction. So I think this and the fact that the way the world works today is we're looking at our phones as well and all this other stuff. We're not present looking at people and, and I think that transfers to the bedroom as well. We're, we're just not being as present as we should be. We're kind of in our heads
1: thinking about stuff. I think it's very true. Uh, the loss of um, contingent response. We're on Skype and we're seeing each other and we're responding to each other. But um, uh, with email, I mean, there's such delays. We're losing the ability to understand body language because we're not interact. There's less interaction, face-to-face interaction. So, yeah, I think that's a, a, major, a major factor, and it could be a major factor in, uh, in, a, in a loss of com, uh, ability to communicate, especially when it comes to something like uh, sexuality, where it's so uh, loaded with so many different factors and so many inhibitions. And, and uh, um, I think uh, uh, to f- facilitate communication is really crucial uh, in, in, uh, in sexuality, in human sexuality um, that's probably a major factor in, uh, in anorgasmia. Uh, I remember there was a, uh, a woman who I started studying anorgasmia and I, and, uh, this woman said that be, she said she, she was anorgasmic. And, uh, I said, come into the, uh, you know, we scheduled her to sc- come in and uh, have a scan so we could get an idea of what, what's going on. And, um, she called me up the the day before. And she says, "I can't, uh, I can't do it." I said, "What what happened?" She said, "Well, she got a new boyfriend and she had the first <laughs> orgasm in <of> her life." <laughs> so, a uh, bummer, you
0: know. Damn, you lost your your scientific study. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was good. That's good news. That's nice to hear. I, mean, I, I believe everyone can. It's just you have to find out what what the problem is. And um, I mean, I'm sure there are so some people who are genetically, for whatever reason, are. There could be there problems
1: be uh, like in diabetes, where there's really nerve damage and sensory sensory uh, compromised sensation. I was going to ask you about lifestyle, like diet. If someone was very
0: overweight. You brought up diabetes. Are there any lifestyle factors like that where they could damage their busy or minimize? lessen their ability to have good orgasms? Is there anything you know of?
1: I don't know of any real...
0: Okay, just health conditions like diabetes or something like that.
1: Well, diabetes, is a, there's nerve damage. So that really is compromising the sensory input. And certainly, I mean, I, I just published a review article on, on uh, brain damage and multiple sclerosis and Parkinsonism. Those uh, can have deleterious effects on, on uh, orgasm, certainly, uh, many uh, there are diseases that can, can interfere, but uh, in people who are are otherwise healthy and anorgasmic, there really is nothing uh, other than taking drugs like uh, 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 SSRIs. You know the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the antidepressants. Those are notorious for increasing serotonin and blocking orgasm. They're they're notorious for inhibiting sexual sexual response. Actually, uh, they are used off-label to treat premature ejaculation in men because of their inhibitory effect, where it's
0: desirable to slow down. Okay, so I don't want any of you guys running out trying to get uh, prescriptions for (laughs) SSRIs now. Uh, Be careful with that kind of stuff. Um, There's other ways to deal with premature ejaculation, I guess. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a r- really good chat. And you've obviously, you know, you've got a wealth of information, just so many decades uh, of looking at this subject. Wh- which would be the best way for people to follow more of your work and get to know
1: you? You've got a few books and other things. Which would be the... I have a book, Science of Orgasm and the Orgasm Answer Guide. And uh, I have a website. My students keep uh, uh, trying to get me to uh, keep it active. So I'll try to, I'll try to do that. I'm at Rutgers University. Uh, they can find me that way. Uh, I have a website. We'll put all of these links in the show notes. And they can send me an email, brk at psychology.rutgers.edu. Uh, be happy to respond to uh, emails.
0: Great. Thank you for that. That's, that's really great. Is there anyone besides yourself you'd recommend for advice or ideas in this area for good research? Um, any area of orgasms or sexuality that you've kind of followed their work and they're people you respect? people that would be interesting for
1: the audience to check out and follow as well? Uh, Well, Beverly Whipple, W-H-I-P-P-L-E. She's retired now, but we did a lot of work together. We're continuing to uh, work together. And um, for peripheral uh, changes um, in uh, in the genital system, I guess uh, Ken Maravilla in Seattle, M A R A V I L L A in Europe – Odil uh, Buisson is doing B U I S S O N is doing imaging of the uh, uh, during intercourse vaginal and penile I- imaging with uh, ultrasound. Those are some. Uh, but if you want some further uh, contacts, and feel free to contact me, and I can refer people to uh, clinicians Erwin uh, Goldstein at, in uh, San Diego is um, a urologist who does a lot of uh, sex research, uh, clinical sex research.
0: Great, thank you. Really appreciate those. So okay. the last quickfire question for you, what would be your top three recommendations to guys who want to improve their orgasms or they want to improve the orgasms of their partners? Based on you know, everything you know, what
1: would be your top tips? Uh, the top tips would be um, take it slow with your partner Uh, Start with nipple and breast and clitoral stimulation and uh, wait until uh, the woman gets uh, more and more aroused and then um, uh, penile vaginal stimulation and uh, cervical stimulation later on. Uh, that sort of build up gradually, but but with communication with your partner to um, to get the timing right and the the patterning, the timing, the force, the the relative force. Uh, that kind of communication is crucial because the 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 force o- the the profile of force over time. You know what to apply stimulation to, how how forceful to apply it, uh, when. And in what pattern and and what combination, those are all crucial to um, building up. You know, think of it as uh, I think uh, two metaphors. Uh, One is um, a metaphor of uh, pushing somebody on a swing, that if you want to get the swing going higher and higher, uh, you have to get the the force and the time when you apply the force, you have to get that right. It's you have to get the rhythm right. If you push at the wrong time, uh, you can stop the whole thing. Uh, so it's the timing and the, the force over time that's that's uh, crucial. And another example is uh, just uh, another metaphor is uh, if let's say uh, if you have a bathtub half full of water, and your objective is to get the water to splash over the top of the rim of the bathtub, and all and you can only use your hands to get the 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 water going, then it, you have to get pe- heed the rhythm of the water in the system. Uh, to know when to apply the force and to get the rhythm going and, and get it uh, sloshing higher and higher until it sloshes over the top, which is the orgasm. So it's a question of force over time and, and where, and, and the timing. I mean, this is, and, and and with, with another human, the, uh, there's a, the critical, I mean, you can do that with yourself, but with, uh, with with another human, there's the, the issue of, of uh, communication because, that person's rhythm and, and force and timing and preferences is different from yours, so you have to find a way to communicate back and forth to to, to optimize the the uh, the interaction and optimize the likelihood of, of of getting getting higher and higher to an orgasm. So that's the basic hint. Take advantage of the fact that there are multiple erotic inputs, and also ask your partner what does it for her? There are people who describe having uh, orgasms from toe stimulation from from ear stimulation, neck stimulation, lip stimulation, nose stimulation, hand stimulation essentially any part of the body people have described uh, that any part of the body can can uh, stimulate orgasms but when it's done by the right person in the right way I mean people with spinal cord injury men and women it's very common they say that at the at the level of the injury, There's an area of of hypersensitive skin uh, that if it's accidentally brushed, it's excruciatingly painful. But if the right person stimulates it in the right way, it produces orgasms from that skin region. It has nothing to do with the genitals. They can have orgasms from stimulating this hypersensitive skin region. So everybody has different erotogenic regions. Find them and and, uh, stimulate them in the right way. But that all requires communication. Yeah. So some great points there, Barry. Thank you very much. And thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it.
0: Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life. Step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at datingskillsreview.com. How we help men like you take control their dating lives.